0: everyone and welcome to another episode of 100 words or less the podcast i'm your host ray harkins thank you for joining us today i realize that sometimes i don't thank you for spending time with me so thank you very much i appreciate it the show definitely has been getting i, don't, I mean i wouldn't say more attention but you know people seem to know that i do this now and that's awesome so i appreciate you listening anyways we're going to be talking to frank three gun from fucking hate breed pardon the language, but Hatebreed. I was pretty excited about this interview because, you know, Hatebreed, they are quite a large band. And um, while Jamie was busy doing press, uh, Frank Threegun was available for interviews. And I said, yeah, let's do this. More on him in a minute. Propertyofzack.com. Go to that site, visit it. I actually met the real Zach in person last weekend at Skate and Surf Music Festival. And it was nice to meet him a face of that name and all that type of stuff go to that site they got great news reviews photos whatever you want about independent music find it there check it out also if you're feeling ever so gracious and i would appreciate it go to 100 wordspodcastcom and you can follow it it's a tumblr blog tumblr bought out by yahoo Hopefully they don't fuck things up, but go check that out. I post a bunch of stuff during the week that you should like because people have emailed me and said, hey, I like when the show recommends some stuff as well, the show being me. So I am recommending stuff on there. If you don't visit the site already, go there. And then uh, go to iTunes, drop some reviews, stars, some sentences about the show, whatever you feel like contributing. I really do appreciate that and take that to heart and it makes the show look legitimate. That way, when people go on iTunes and they're like, what do the reviews say? Oh, great. This seems cool. This seems legitimate. So I appreciate that. I myself have been so busy traveling, doing a bunch of stuff for work. It's just been hectic, and I haven't really been able to enjoy what I get out of this podcast recently from it. So I'm really trying to focus in on this and be like, all right, I love doing this. It takes up a lot of time, for me to book the interviews do the interviews all that type of stuff fortunately i have a amazing person tom richfield our editor who helps out the show tremendously but anyways i went to skate and surf festival and for those of you that don't know what that is that is a music festival outside of new york city actually in new jersey it was a uh, well it was an interesting experience we'll put it that way i had a lot of fun because i got to see friends who i don't normally see on a regular basis got to do a lot of work stuff got to see a lot of business contacts, whatever. All that type of stuff was great. But I got to see something that was reminiscent of something else. Ryan Lewis and Macklemore played this festival. And they are massive, you know? They are top 10 Billboard singles, like, you know, in ways that this world of music that we live in doesn't really happen. I mean, it just doesn't happen, you know? Like, when you're having top 10 Billboard singles, like, the last person I can think of that did that was obviously, like, Dashboard Confessional. I'm sure there's more examples, but that's just the one that comes to my head. My Chemical Romance, Fall Out Boy, obviously those fall into it. So, this reminded me of, like, when Andrew W.K., he played a festival, I want to say in 2002, called Furnace Fest. It was this hardcore festival in Alabama, Birmingham, if I'm not mistaken, where... This was like right after Andrew W.K. released his first Full Length on Island. And people were kind of talking about him, but not really knowing what was up with him. And I just remember the look of joy on everybody's face as he was playing. Kids were stage diving. Kids were singing along. It was one of those things where people felt like they were in the moment as far as like, dude, we are never going to see Andrew W.K. at this sort of venue in this experience ever again. And honestly, the way that Ryan Lewis and Macklemore performed... Oh, at skate and surf definitely gave me the same vibe where it's like they are not used to seeing this sort of crowd interaction you know kids crowd surfing and you know the this sort of you know what, what kids do at punk shows and hardcore shows and whatever um and so it was really fun to see their interaction with the crowd and just to kind of feel that moment of like dude i'm seeing something that's pretty ridiculously special i really enjoyed that experience saw a lot of other bands that were great but that all escapes my brain right now so anyways, there's no point to that. I just wanted to share with you in that sort of special experience and like you know those moments where it's like you get you go to a show and either it's something that a band is playing a really small venue that they haven't broken through yet or whatever like you just have those moments like I remember seeing the postal service in a very small venue in San Diego called the Casbah, which is like four hundred capacity room, and it was uh you know i I, I totally felt that moment of like, dude, this is never happening again. And now they're playing the fucking Barclays Center in New York City. Anyways, it's just weird. So go to shows. That's basically what I'm saying. <laughs> Frank Three Gun. I did not know this guy at all. Never had any interaction with him in the past. So that was intimidating for one. And two, I set this up through a publicist, which typically I don't always do. And it made me nervous. It makes me nervous doing this for one reason alone. I'm not able to to provide the proper context directly to the person I'm interviewing because, you know, they see on their schedule, okay, 9 a.m., podcast interview. Um, and obviously what we do here isn't like all the other interviews that they do if for magazines or other, you know, news sites or whatever. Um, they're talking to them about their record. And so I was scared that Frank was going to give me a lot of, I don't know, sort of, I wouldn't say canned responses, but responses that he's doing in the middle of a press cycle. Um, And so you'll distinctly hear, like, towards the middle of the interview, Frank start to understand what what it was that I was trying to get across and how the show I'm kind of, you know, trying to lead him towards. So it was cool. I really enjoyed when Frank, um, not to say the beginning of the conversation sucked, but it was just about putting it in context for him. I really appreciated Frank's time and obviously the publicist, Sarah, who set it up. So props to both of them. But anyways, enough of that. Here's my interview with Frank, legendary, hardcore dude in the sense of he spent time in integrity, ringworm, and now he's in Hatebreed. He has credentials, my friends. There's a lot of universal truths that he speaks in here, and so uh, I hope that you listen to it and enjoy. I'll talk to you afterwards. that you've put out. Um, Mm -hmm. I just always remember it's like, you know, basically anytime anybody has a nickname, it's hilarious because they could be one way, but their uh, nickname could mean something completely different. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I just always remember hearing about this dude, you know, Frank three gun, he's going around to, you know, like obviously you, you cut your teeth with ringworm and integrity. And then um, my entry point for you was terror um, or becoming more aware of, you know, who you were. Uh, just because being from Southern California, seeing terror a ton. Mm-hmm. So is, is it one of those things that when certain people meet you, they they, they come in with a lot of uh, expectations on how you are as an individual?
1: <laughs> I think that uh, a lot of people that are fans of your music and know anything about you have a lot of preconceived notions of how, how they want you to be anyway. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes you let them down, I guess. I don't know. You know, it's... it's uh, I, I deal with the same thing being a fan of music of, of other bands when I meet them. You know what I mean? They are how you want them to be in your head. And, you know, anything less um, is a disappointment, I guess, if you're really a really huge fan of the band. But, you know, f- fortunately, I guess people are open-minded sometimes, too. and, and Right. They, they just, you know what I mean? They They, they don't, as long as you're friendly and things like that, and then they're not too bummed on it. So
0: right, right. Well, I and I think that's the biggest thing. Where it's like some people may have the preconceived notion like, oh, dude, Frank, like man, that dude's a hard ass. And then they meet you, and it's like, oh no, he's just a nice dude.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that, That's pretty much that's that's the, that's the case actually in hand. So you know, we're we're all approachable guys. We're, we're all like everybody's a good dude in the band, so to speak.
0: And, yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's definitely difficult, especially when you play aggressive music and you've been doing it for a long time there's always going to be those uh you know constituents of people who are just going to have that
1: sean and the band used to get that a lot and you know i think a lot of people outside of the hardcore community aren't where they're not used to being as personable with the band's like like we are in our community, and like more more in the metal scene. I think more like that, you know, especially with the name of the band, Ape Breed, and, and these scary looking guys with tattoos and stuff like that. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so you yourself, born and raised? Were you born and raised in the Cleveland area, or where, where'd you come up?
1: I was born and raised in Cleveland. I've been in Florida for about five years now, though yeah um, I've been wanting to be down there for a long time, and it finally made it happen. I don't plan on leaving any time ever, so <laughs> I'm happy down there where I want to be, and you know it's great to be from Cleveland, and obviously, there was a lot of great music from out of there and and family and friends are still there. As a matter of fact, we were in Toledo last night playing the show, which isn't too far from there. We had a bunch of people come out. it was
0: great. Nice, nice. And so, uh, what was your, what was your family structure like growing up? Like, you know, did you have brothers and sisters and what did your mom and dad do as far as like work and, you know, your, your upbringing, so to speak?
1: Well, my mom and dad were doing a lot of drugs it was pretty shitty at home, but one thing that came out pretty out of it is I was introduced to music at such an early age, which led me to where I'm at, you know. Mm-hmm. By the time I was six years old, I had my own record collection of The Who and, and Kiss records and Stones records and things like that. And I think that me being introduced to music at such an early age, it led me to the metal, you know, the thrash and punk and hardcore scenes in, in my early teens, which is great, you know, because I was able to, you know, fit in and... and with the underground community and, and network and meet a lot of people and it's great, you know it's uh, to be some music that much I mean I, I meet a lot of people in in life in general and my travels that aren't really into music at all, and I can, can't even fathom that you know it's such a big part of our life. yeah, I think it's crazy to me, but uh, I, one thing that was great about it was uh, you know I was introduced to it at an early age, so
0: having your own record collection at six is obviously not normal, and obviously, like you said no. your your circumstances of being raised were not normal right. uh, so how did <laughs> who how did you amass your record collection at six, and like who was who was doing their uh, influencing on you?
1: Well, you know, in the 70s, you know, when I was growing up, kiss was like the biggest thing there was. I mean, a lot of people, it's hard for people to of that now that they're younger because they think it's just a joke when they see it. But really, you know, when you're a young kid and, and you're sucked into that, you know, here's these larger life heroes that are like comic book characters that you think aren't even real when you're looking at the record covers when you're a kid that you're pretty much scared to death of. When you see Gene Simmons with the blood telling me I was laughing and all that, like that every kid in America had a kiss record back then at that point. I mean they were not only on like on rock magazines, they were on like teen magazines with like Leaf Garrett, Stop Ale and stuff like that, like at that, and it just was larger in life, the movie and on NBC and the comic books and all that stuff. So I was it was normal for kids in the seventies to have kiss records actually. So there was other music that I was into besides then, too. You know, I was just branching off. The older I got the more stuff I was getting into. Right. You know, right. The old the older you get the more Stuff that you didn't like when you were younger, you, you find yourself getting into, or things that you you might not have been hip to that your parents were listening to back then. You, you kind of. Grow into and, and like now,
0: and so the, your your parents kind of introduce you to music in general, and then then basically you started to kind of run off with it on your own.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, what, what my parents said that when Smoke on the Water would come on the radio, that I would dance in my dirty diapers and hold on to my father's tower speakers while the song was playing and rock <gasps> out when that song would come on. So, which is which is really cool, you know. But, and then I might one day did a reading in two hundred eighty-five. My father took me and we had a good time.
0: So nice, yeah.
1: So I definitely, definitely, you know, I mean. Uh, I would always be thinking through my father's records, and when you're, you know, know, when you're up and coming uh, as a young person, you're you're so impressionable, and you know, you know that was the beauty of records back then. Especially that a lot of people will never understand nowadays that that aren't into vinyl that you know was like the artwork and you're holding a record and you, you open it up and there's all these things inside to look at and it was really
0: cool especially if you're growing up in a chaotic environment when you can look at something that is tangible and seems fun that's like what you're going to latch on to <laughs> where it's going to uh, be absolutely that's gonna guide you yeah did did, did you did you have any uh, brothers or sisters that were navigating this with you?
1: well, no, my sister's seven years younger than I am, so she she she's definitely into music big time too um, but uh you know she was uh, it was a little bit later on I think she sure. was and she was little less chaotic when she was coming up so
0: that's good that's good um and so as you started to enter in high school and stuff like that because obviously that's the sort of formative years in regards to, you know, kind of what you're trying to figure out to do with your life. What sort of role did you find yourself filling, you know, were you kind of a, you know, a little shit or were you, uh, did you care about school or was that when you kind of dedicated your life to music?
1: You know, kid I wanted to be like a rock star like you know that, that's when, when, when you're in the music and you're that young that's what your dream is but then when you get older you realize that, that that's never going to happen you know and, I, <laughs> and at that point I wanted to become a chef you know I was really interested in cooking and things like that but this was still early on I mean even in middle school things like that I really didn't care for school at all I wasn't a bad kid I showed up every day never gave teachers a problem but I just didn't my head was never there I never took my books home. I never did anything. Like I'm just sad sat in class, and my mind was not on what was going on there. Right. You graduated. You were
0: yeah. f- physically present, but you're like, yo, you don't have my mind.
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, and that's really what it was. And I didn't really get too much of a hard time for the teachers because I think, hey, I wasn't causing any problems. I wasn't a bad kid. I wasn't missing school. I just didn't care. You know, and mm-hmm. you know, when you're into the kind of music that we're into anyway, you're alienated from everybody at school for the most part, so that right. even made me more disinterested.
0: That's pretty interesting that, uh, t- you know, being a chef spoke to you at such an early age. What uh, wh- what was interesting about that to you?
1: Uh, my grandmother did a lot. My grandparents, I spent a lot of time with, they They, they pretty much raised me. My grandfather was like a father to me. Mm-hmm. My grandmother was like the greatest woman in my life as far as I'm concerned and she she you know, I would watch her cook and stuff at an early age always she was always making food and things like that and I was really interested in that. They they were such an inspiration on my life in general that any little thing that they did I was into, you know, just because they cared, you know it and I think that uh made me pay attention a little bit more. So I think that's where that came from. And
0: obviously because your 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 parents were involved in things that prevented them from taking care of you. So is this your father's parents or your mother's parents oh uh, my my mother's parents oh okay got it got it and so basically you ended up in their care and they took you know all of the interest a lot, in the, yeah a lot yeah.
1: life was a lot better over there i was home so yeah i tried to be there as much,
0: much <laughs> right right yeah i mean i i i definitely can empathize with the whole grandparent situation where it's like yeah. the you know it Anytime a grandparent takes, you know, a vested interest in a, in a child and actually is like, okay, this, you know, yeah. it, it's just an incredible experience because a lot of people look at yeah, their, it is. A lot of people look at their grandparents and are like, oh, those are just those weird old people, and it's like when you yeah, when you have a different relationship with them, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's a night and day thing. I mean, other people are other kids take the you know the world; they can't wait to go to their grandma's house or whatever. But yeah, like you said, other people are like, oh, I guess it might be an age thing. I don't know or how, how, how tight a family is, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. And it's like the, the idea that they could actually like, teach you something. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and so when did, uh, obviously, like you said, the idea of being a rock star seemed so unfathomable. Um, and so how did, uh, you know, how did, because did you play with Ringworm first or was it Integrity?
1: It was Ringworm, no matter of fact. Okay. James and I, who, who I'm still best friends with, uh, we started, we were we were skaters, you know, we were, we were in the, like, skateboarding, and at that point in high school, we found, you know, punk rock and thrash metal and, and hardcore music at that, you know, while we were still in high school. So we were, you know, we were, the, the, the earache bands were, were just now, beginning and napalm, that things like that so we were into that scene and we were into the hardcore scene and what we really wanted to do was make something that was cross between the two we wanted to make something that was like year meets revelation which not nothing had ever been done like that before right and at this time you know at the at this time the hardcore scene was totally getting into the metal scene you know you uh, had bands coming out that were mixing toa and slayer and things like that so I, I we may have created rainbow that you know in, in 1990 you know? and our yeah. last year high school and, and that was the birth of that.
0: And so was that, was that the uh, like first official band you tried to like play in or had you kind of, you know, messed around with stuff prior to that?
1: Well, James and I did a band called force of habit at the time, which, um, was like pre rainworm. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, we had a song on a compilation and, uh um, a, a label from California, actually, called uh, Conversion Records. Oh, yeah, of course. And, uh, yeah, yeah. we had a, a song on on his compilation. I think Integrity was on it, Face Value, and it was Dennis Ramsey's label at the time, or what I think his name was. And uh, we that was where he and I originally showed up first. But um, I was writing no lyrics at the time, and I'm no lyricist. And, you know, the music a little changed a little bit from that. And I think the force of habit, which was what Dan was called, was a little more hardcore than Ringworm was. And, you know, we we just decided to, to disband that after that really soon and start with something else with two new members and do something right, a little more
0: metal-influenced. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, obviously, it's like anybody that does any sort of research on the hardcore scene in general, you know, they can definitely attribute Cleveland to being the first scene to really uh, not only obviously combine the idea of, you know, metal and hardcore, but then obviously the sort of, you know, religious iconography of like the sort of left-hand path idea um was, yeah. it, was was that something that you know really intrigued you as well or was it just kind of the melding of the music that was most uh you were most passionate about personally
1: i think it was the music more than anything i was into writing the songs and, and the music and, and that style um you know when you're into the metal scene and then you find art course, and i guess after i guess that's how it went. it went down as far as the songwriting goes as far as religious overtones that comes from the singer James mm-hmm. uh, or other people know, know him as human furnace I guess and, yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah you no know, that that's that's um, you know that's where that comes from and, and that was something that Twin was into as well so that was kind of a theme for t- those both of those fans anyhow out of our out of our scene that you know a little darker a little little different yeah at, for, at the time at the time for the hardcore scene anyway but at any rate everybody got everybody's interest it seems and. uh some that we're proud of, you know, the, the, the Cleveland scene back then, especially. I mean, that's how I ended up knowing the guys' in Hatebreed because right. they were fans of, of that stuff at the time, and I met them very early on. So
0: I think I give it like, you know, tell, tell me if you think this is a correct statement, where it's like, I think if you're involved in the hardcore scene in general, or just independent music, where it's like, I think between five and seven years, that's when it's like, you're like basically one person removed from everybody. <laughs> where it's like you're like oh yeah i know that guy I-, I don't know his friend but i know the friend of the friend you know just because it's such a even though it is a big scene it's still pretty small when you get down to it
1: oh yeah it's absolutely community yeah Out for small sure community
0: yeah yeah for sure um yeah, and I definitely remember myself, like you know, because I—I uh, mean, I'm I'm 32 years old, and when I first, mm-hmm. I think when I first, yeah, when I got Integrity Systems Overload, that was the first time, because especially here in Southern California, you know, there wasn't there wasn't much of that, you know, sort of darker hardcore. <laughs> um, and I remember, oh no, yeah, yeah, I remember getting that and being like, you know, I was literally scared. Where it's just like, what the fuck is this, like? opened it up and understood where it was like oh you know you know there's integrity and ringworm and like you said a lot of the stuff that was coming out from there um you know it, it's so interesting to see that scene just pop up in cleveland where you're just like of all places like you know mm-hmm. not not directly attached to anything anything on the coast or anything like that it's just like this yeah working class midwest town was able to kind of turn this out
1: yeah, absolutely, and and, and it's, it's funny you say that, because that was that was my first hit with them in 1995, when we say that, and that was our first time coming to the West Coast to playing shows, and we did a, a 10-day run with Ignite, which is a band that's completely opposite of Integrity, when you're talking about the lyrics and things
0: like that. <laughs> totally.
1: <laughs> and, and Damn Nation AD, and uh, it was a good time, and we did 10, 10 shows out there, and that was our first time coming to Cali, and it's good to... You know, hate-breeding or hate breed. integrity was never really much of a um, touring band ever. You know, we they never we never spent time on the road. It was like a couple trips to Europe, a couple shows on the East Coast, a couple shows in Buffalo here. You know, these these cities that are close to, to Cleveland, the, 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 the Detroits, the Eries, the Buffaloes, the Pittsburghs, and things like that, and then like a trip to the West Coast every once in the blue moon, and that's it, so... Right. It was good for us to go out there and see what the scene was like out there. The shows were great, you know, and Cal I mean, you know, Southern California, especially, has always been known for having some of the best shows ever. And yeah, the hardcore scene. Oh yeah, yeah. P- yeah. So that was that was a great experience for us to go out there and play the. Uh, I think it was the showcase when we were in SoCal. And, uh, yeah, it was. It was awesome.
0: That's that's great. During that time too, it's like you know, like you said, touring was limited, so. It, it definitely built into the mystique of a lot of bands because, you know, all you'd be able to interact with them is on their records and like, you know, sure. s- some you know, yeah some photos that you would see in zines and that's kind of it. Um, so it's like, you know, you have bands like uh, like you were saying, where it's like, you know, a lot of the uh, cl- a lot of the Cleveland bands. But then I definitely remember like Bloodlet as well in Florida, where you're just kind of like, it's th- it's like this scary, weird shit <laughs> that I just yeah. can't put my oh. finger on it.
1: They were another one, yeah.
0: You know, as you started to have more experience on the road, like, were you, you know, back at home, is it one of those things where it's like you were just obviously, like, working random jobs just to kind of keep you afloat in order to push on to the next tour or whatever?
1: Uh, Actually, I had a solid job throughout the whole thing. I worked in the tire industry for 11 or 12 years from the time I got, you know, it wasn't too long out of high school until the time I joined here. 2004, so I was holding down the same job all that time. Oh, wow. I had a pretty, yeah, I had a pretty solid job. So solid that they would let me <laughs> run and do my little shows anytime I needed to and come back without any questions asked. So that's, I'm sure, it was, it had a lot to do with why I stayed.
0: That, that's incredible that they you know, imagine a corporate or factory environment not understanding the fact that one of their good employees yeah. has to leave for a few weeks at a time yeah. or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, that's what it was, really. And then, you know, in 2004, when, when I joined Terra, I knew that I was never going to be able to, it was going to be on the road not stopped. So the, and then I left. I made that decision. It was hard, you know, because there's a lot of security that you're leaving there. You know, I'm a son and, and, you know, a place that I'm living at and, and a job of, with all the benefits of a job and vacation time. And, and just,
0: that was kind like, of your fork in the road moment where you had to really feel like, all right, I either do this or I stick with this job.
1: Well, I think that, you know, and then I get asked the question in interviews a lot, what's your advice to give to, to young kids and things like that? And mm-hmm. I think that's the toughest part of it. If you're able to be in a band that's lucky enough to be able to make that to that point where you have to make the decision where are you going to leave everything at home and throw it out the window pretty much. I mean, cause that's what you're really doing when you're going out on the road Right. for this life to try to do what you do, you know, whether it's, what level it's at, you know, or, and wonder about how long it's going to last. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal, it really is, especially if you have a family and stuff like that. So
0: Yeah, it's easy for you to make a decision like that when you're, you know, 18 years old and yep. you, you only have to care about yourself, but then once, you know, once you do adult shit, it's like, okay, I really have to weigh this decision.
1: Yeah, yeah and, I'm, and here I'm 33 years old at that point, you know, so... <laughs> right. It was tough, you know. You could never not do it because I could never go through my life wondering what if, you know. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't want to do that.
0: I think that's such a hacky question of like, hey, what advice can you give? It's like, because you know, like, I think anybody that's doing something that is like of value uh, can't, like, they, they haven't arrived there easy. There's not like this, okay, here's this one singular thing. No. Yeah. Hey, here's, yeah. here's, here's my advice. Work at a tire factory and play yeah. you know, play thirty shows a year. Like that's what I did.
1: Yeah. It's a hard question to answer and it's a different answer for different every different person.
0: So. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. You're like, tell me your scenario.
1: Right. A proper answer would be a half hour long for that. So
0: right. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, don't don't look at me. I've done I've done weird shit. I don't know why I'm here right now, but I am. Right. <laughs> and so when you uh sink your teeth into the uh you know, the business of terror, because that was essentially your first sort of quote unquote real band in the sense of like okay like we are a full-fledged business like we are out in the road you know 300 days out of the year um that obviously suited you pretty well stepping into it right
1: it did and I know Scott um the singer um since 1989 who's mm-hmm. one of my really good friends so and it's another networking thing. that's another thing one of people ask how do how you know what's some advice you can give these young kids I'm like just go out there and network there you go there's the end of your yeah. answer and <laughs> Have a nice day. Right. Take that however you want. <laughs> sure. But that, essentially, that, especially that's what it was, in a lot of these situations, was networking and knowing people and the community. That that is a hardcore scene, and you know that that's what led me to talk, to to there in for sure.
0: Yeah, well, and I think I think the important distinction to make, and what I anytime I talk to a person that's looking for advice, like because there's a difference between networking and actually being genuine about it. Because it's like, you know, you hear the word networking and that immediately gives you like, you know, the heebie-jeebies where it's like, okay, you imagine like a fucking conference room in a hotel where it's like, oh, here's a networking event. Pass out your business cards. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But I I understand your point because obviously that's the easiest way to describe networking. But it's like, yeah, if you're genuine about wanting to do something and you get to know people, they're going to want to try to help you out if you are a cool person and you are in it for the right reasons. And like, usually that's pretty transparent when you talk to a person for like five minutes, it's like, okay, you're down, you know, what's up. And that's obviously what led Scott to be like, Hey, Frank would be good for this role.
1: sure, sure.
0: And so the, yeah, the transition out of terror and obviously into hate breed, I mean, hate breed, like terror was a machine. Hate breed is a machine as well, just from the touring standpoint. Um, but obviously on like a whole different level, and I actually, I interviewed Scott for this same show, like, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And uh, it was always funny because we were, we were talking about the idea of how terror was always being touted as, as the next hate breed. And Scott's like, we never, yep. got, we never got there. <laughs> and like, so obviously, terror and hate breed are on two different levels. Like, was it, uh, was it pretty overwhelming for you to sort of see how large Haybreed was when you stepped into that role initially?
1: You know, you're talking about some of my best friends that were people that I would talk to on the phone almost every day for years and years and years prior to me being part of it. You right. Know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm on the road. With, they're always having my bands open for them, whether it was there or anywhere, riding on their bus, even when I wasn't in the band, even just to hang out and stuff. So it's not at all. i mean, spent a lot of time with these guys, especially in and Jamie at that point. It wasn't. I knew exactly what was going on, you know, I mean, and it's funny because like the first week in, in the band and I was doing tons of interviews already and people, I remember people were like, hey, this dude's been in the band for a week and he's doing interviews, talking about the history of the band and everything, which, you know, I, I, it's, it's, they're some of my best friends. So I, I pretty much knew about everything that was going on at that point. You know, the only thing that was when I was was me going on stage with them rather than not, you know, to play. So yeah. See, I was it. definitely aware of the magnitude. Um maybe the first show that we played was with Corn in Australia, I think opening for them and there was about 10,000 people there and then that really hit me the magnitude. but uh, right. <laughs> I had a gist, I, I, I had a gist of, of, of
0: what it was. Right, sure. right. yeah, it's like you, you you have to look at it from the standpoint where it's like, all right, I'm used to the mechanics of what I do, like playing on stage and you know not looking like a complete idiot. And, but then obviously like looking at it from it's like, oh, I'm just playing in front of a lot more people than I ever had in the past. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> was that a pretty uh, out-of-body experience for you, like when you were playing in front of that many people, to be like, wow, am I even here right now?
1: You know, I mean, there's so many songs at that point in the catalog. and You know, you just take learning them all in one shot, and then you've got <laughs> shows to do instantly. I think all that was, was nerve-wracking, you know. You want to do your best, and you, you doubt yourself a lot when you're put under that pressure. Um, but to me now, it's like, I think within a half year or a year later, it was just second nature. I mean, I don't even think anything about going on, like when we do a festival and play like 70 or 100,000 people, it's, I don't even get any, the least bit nervous or anything like that. So yeah. I think that at the beginning, it was the pressures of, you know, learning all the songs and wanting to do good and not wanting to let anybody down, and especially the fans. You know, I mean, obviously, I don't want to my, let my bandmates and my friends down, but, you know, when, when the band is at, Large uh, and and uh, have such a ginormous fan base. Obviously, they've got their opinions about things, and I don't want them to hate on the new guys,
0: uh, right? Well, yeah, for, for he...
1: lack lack of better terms.
0: So, yeah, no, for sure. You don't want to walk out there and be like, "Yo, who's this hack? <laughs> who's this? who's this guy exactly. tripping around the Hatebreed songs?"
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't want
0: that, right? Right did they, Did they take open auditions from YouTube? Is that how they got this dude? <laughs>
1: funny that you say that because that's pretty much how it goes down sometimes now with the youtube
0: thing basically every move that hate breed made, make just because they've been such a part of you know the scene in general and then obviously yeah. they've, they've grown past it but it's like every move they've made in regards to you know new members or tours or whatever i really admire the fact that obviously there has never been a question of credibility no one has ever looked at hate breed and been like all oh, their fucking sellouts or You know, even from the most, you know, hardcore constituent kid that's just like, you know, a a hardcore purist where it's like, oh, if they have a a UPC barcode on the back of their CD, they're sellouts. But like, you can never look at Hatebreed and be like, oh, yeah, they're they're sellouts.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, we try to do everything the right way and really do everything we can to make it so people don't get that vibe from us. You know, we just want to be the same people that we are and try to be as much as possible and you know it's uh... it's are you know we find ourselves in a world of people that don't come from what we come from and, and we're surrounded by egos and attitudes and stuff like that all the time and it's hard to, to deal with sometimes but at the end of the day I think that's what makes us special as a band in the metal scene now at this point i mean really um not that we don't play hardcore bands you know to be around the metal world so much i think that's what a lot of the people that became fans of this band from that scene admire about us is uh it's way more personal for them than than the metal bands that they're used to
0: yeah oh definitely i mean and honestly I, i can i can equally attribute that to the longevity of the band as well where it's like there, there's only so many years that a band can play to the same fans. It's like you obviously have to, you have to continue to grow, but then also not completely alienate the people that have grown up with you. And it's like, you know, there's something to be said about aging gracefully. Which obviously, I think, you know, the fact that you are still around doing interviews about Hatebreed shows the fact that there, there is that level of thought that you guys put into the band. Where it's like, okay. We want to try to do, you know, we don't want to try to expand ourselves, but not to the point of where we lose the meaning of what we're doing.
1: Sure, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think that's what all the, the bands from the scene, quote-unquote, should try to do. You always want to do what you do without changing what you do, but and to, but try to make it grow at the level that it is now, you know. Um, and that's really it in a nutshell. Yeah, no, nobody for want, sure. If, yeah, nobody wants to buy a record of your band. And, and
0: have it not sound like you have. yeah, and I, I th- that that actually leads to a perfect point that I was going to ask about was just the fact that you guys have developed musically over the years, and like there are different nuances to each record, but you know stylistically speaking, you know I, and I don't mean this negatively, but they all sound the same, a record that you know your new record that people are going to purchase similarities to you know records that you've done you know ten years ago, and I think there's something that's uh Comforting about that, but then there's also something that shows the fact that you know you don't want to deviate from what makes you guys you. Is that something that you guys constantly wrestle around with when you're writing new songs?
1: It's a challenge, and it's a fine line that we walk when we make a record that we have to make a, a, a few audiences happy. You know, I mean, we played with, with rock bands, with Disturbed, and like Five Finger that Punch, and we we obviously we come from the hardcore scene and metal fans as well. It's a fine line that we walk when we make a record to create something that appeals to everybody. And um, that's one thing that we're proud of very much. And we're fans of all those genres. And we really think, I think that we really do a good job of doing that on every record. And at the same time, keeping people that love H3 happy. It's the same thing as ACDC Motorhead do. You know, when people go to buy those bands' records, they want them to, to sound like them. And, and, they have a diehard fan base, and they have for a long time, and obviously we do too. I mean, it's a way smaller level, but, you know, it's the same uh, morals, Yeah, sure. I, I
0: I like that point, because I personally haven't thought about it from that perspective of bands like, yeah, like you said, ACDC and Motorhead. You know, it's like so many bands get to a certain point where they feel like, okay, we need to throw everything out and sort of reinvent ourselves and sometimes yeah. you know sometimes that works and then there's other times where it completely you know blows everything up that they've had but yeah I, there's something to be said about like sticking to the course and just kind of you know going through with that because that ultimately is what you started the band for in the first place you know or why Hatebreed started yeah, in the first yeah. place yeah. You, you mentioned that you have uh a child like how old is your kid now he's
1: gonna be 18 um graduating high school. That's insane. <laughs> really insane. Has
0: he been, obviously, aware of what you do and what you've kind of dedicated your life to, uh, or is he a completely different uh, version of yourself?
1: No, he's aware. I had him on the hot stress when he was 10 years old for a week, so how many kids could say that, that for some of <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he for sure. He got definitely got a good dose of of, of, of what like, a day in the life of his dad is that. But he's definitely aware. I mean, there's no way he could not be aware of this day and age of the internet, things like that.
0: So, but, right, right. And does he uh, does does he have an, a you know an attraction to it, or is he musical himself, or is he taking kind of a different a path? Music,
1: he's, in the, he's in the musical. He, he's into making music on a computer, and he likes to music like all the young kids do now. And, sure. Um, but he also plays guitar. You know, he'll, he'll get on Skype with me when I'm out. We'll be riffing out to like Machine Head and stuff. <laughs> I, uh, I'll send the videos over to Rob. You know, a friend of mine, a friend of mine. Right. So my kid, my young kid's working out with your man. It's 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 an awesome thing, you know. But I I don't push any of that. I don't matter. Yeah. Just been blessed. Blessed that he's a good kid and he stays out of trouble.
0: So. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I think that's a great point because obviously they're the whole idea of overexposing y- your kid because obviously all they're going to do is what you know you or I did when we were teens and be like, oh, I'm not into that at all. Whatever my dad's into is the lamest shit ever. I gotta figure out something on sure. my own.
1: Yep. That's just yep. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's the way I am. I have push pushed it to him to do anything like that. But,
0: yeah.
1: Um, he decided he wanted to play guitar when he was younger. He got pretty damn good at it. And, you know, continues to do the athletes influenced by a lot of other things, just way into computers and technology and things like that. Too, like a
0: lot of kids are nowadays. So, yeah. Well, that's that's cool that you obviously have been able to navigate that because I, I can imagine it was uh it's difficult, especially being exposed to what we've been exposed to. I, I'm really happy with my life and hardcore is awesome. Like here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and sort of to to you know wrap things up. I'm sure there has to be in your own mental headspace where you're, you know, you're just obviously taking it. I imagine a day at a time, even though Hatebreed as an entity, you know, has plans for the next year, year and a half. You know, the idea of like what you would find yourself doing, obviously, if tomorrow Hatebreed would Hatebreed would end. You know, would you would you go back into the idea of obviously trying to you know be a chef or is there other uh, interests that you've developed over the years that would be like. Oh, if for whatever reason I had to put down my guitar, I would do this.
1: Oh, I mean, like you said, for me, it is a a one-day-at-a-time thing. I try not to confuse myself with with, with everything where I got to be all the time. I try to keep it a few days ahead of me and that's it. During eight three I'm trying to trying to you know, I i, cook, I try and be cooked as much as possible when I'm home and if we're even doing that on the bus out here. We have we have the skill out here and it's rock rock, things like that. But mm-hmm. everybody's a, a chef in their own mind I guess on here. I don't know what I would do, you know. I, I think that I would probably stay in music for sure do something, whether whether it's being in bands or, or, or being on the road or, or working with bands. You know, once you've adapted to this life it's kinda hard to just imagine yourself going back to being at home all the time and working at a nine-to-five, you know. Obviously, life would go on no matter what happens.
0: You do your best to try to figure something out that obviously could still attach to the passion that you've developed over the years for it. Sure,
1: sure. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, maybe maybe I would want to be home and, you know, sleep in my same bed every night, or maybe I want to continue to be out there seeing people all the time and traveling like we are. So
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you have a relationship with your parents now? Or is it one of those things they've kind of, you know, distanced themselves from your life?
1: I do. You know, it's on and off. You know, uh, my father uh, was just down visiting me, actually, uh, at home in Florida uh, a couple weeks before the tour started. And then uh, he and I are, are going out to Hawaii for my son's graduation uh, in May. Oh, nice. Uh, but, uh, yeah.
0: Do they they understand, you know, kind of what you're doing now? Like, you know, have they they seen the fruits of the labors where it's like all these shows that he was going to when he was growing up, like, have now led to something? Or is it something they still kind of don't understand?
1: To a certain point, I mean, I'm sure my dad is mad that... I don't play guitar like Eric Clapton still, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> he he, he, yeah, he understands what, what what we're doing. I mean, he comes to the shows. He's definitely around. He, he knows all about the band. He, he, he's, uh, in his retired time, he finds himself driving taxi a couple days a week just to get on the house and do it. And, mm-hmm. You know, he's always running into what I would imagine to be drunk people in the cab late at night who, who know about the band or something like that. So now that probably. Puts into perspective and in him to him that you know that we're just you know obviously when if I'm touring around the world and things like that you know the band's doing well and, and other people that have heard of us that it, it's it's legit it's way past the point where he, he thought what is he what is this guy doing
0: yeah did he did he ever have those conversations with you where he was like Frank you need to not do this like so, you know say when you were going to um, you know quit your tire job and obviously go out to L A to join Terror was it was it one of those conversations you had.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, my dad's one of those kind of people that he's always right, so I'm sure that that conversation sparked in 2004 at the time, yeah, for sure, without a doubt. But, you know, growing up with somebody who's always right, you tend to rebel against that for sure, and and in your own mind, somebody who thinks they're always right, too, so two peas in a pond, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah you know, my sister and I joke, my sister and I joke all the time. whatever it gets you know do do the opposite you'll be fine you know so
0: <laughs> that's that's incredible. you're just like you know what i've I've seen where you've gone. I've seen the decisions that you've made right I'm gonna go ahead yeah. and go the opposite way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's incredible well uh Thank you so much for your time, Frank. I really appreciate it. And obviously, I know this, this throws you off from other interviews that you're used to just because it's, you know, sort of
1: sound bites. No, talk fun, actually. I had, a good, I had a good time, without a doubt. All right.
0: Did you enjoy that? I did. It was cool. Like I said, it's always unnerving for me to go into an interview and have really no context for this person. I'm just a disembodied voice on the other end of the phone. And I'm just trying to, you know, create that connection. It's hard because obviously over the phone, over Skype, over whatever, sometimes, it, you know, people don't get dialed into each other right away. But I was happy we were able to lock in, connect. He was able to understand where I was coming from. I was able to, you know, get some responses out of him that was like, oh, that's cool. I like what you've done with your life. I was really happy that Frank took the time. Go check out the new Hatebreed record. That's kind of why they're doing this in the first place. So check it out. Visit propertyofzack.com. Visit 100 wordspodcastcom The editor of the show is Tom Richfield, and that is absolutely awesome. And uh, until next week, next week's a big episode. I'm teasing you already, so get excited. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you next week. Be safe, everybody.